Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome to Women in Horror Month. We've got a great lineup of female-crafted terrors headed your way over the next couple of weeks, as well as some introductions to frightful female authors just releasing their debut novels, introduced to you by our own fiction editor, Meredith Morgenstern. But before we dig into that... I'd just like to let you know about a new project I think you should check out. Our very own Andrew Gibson has narrated a new audiobook that just released on Audible, a tale of horror and dark magical realism that sounds right up our alley. Here's a blurb to whet your appetite. Some places have a history so dark it stains the soil. Orphan Rock is one of them. For years, the Northam family has served the crooked woman. Bound by sinister magic, they commit unspeakable acts to save themselves and the ones they love from something wicked that's stirring beneath the dirt. Harpies in the hills, demons in the dark, lonely girls who command giant earthworms that tunnel between worlds. Anything goes in this twisted tale of monsters, mayhem, and revenge. A contemporary dark fantasy with elements of horror, Chad Ryan's Ghost River is a gritty, desolate journey into the peaks and gulches of the human spirit. If you enjoy Andrew's narrations like I do, you're going to want to get your hands on a copy of Ghost River, 
which you can do from Audible at the link in the show notes. This sounds like a fantastically dark tale, and you better believe I'm adding it to my library. I hope you do, too. One more thing before I hand it off to Meredith. You didn't think I'd let you get away without a reminder of our flash fiction contest, did you? We're creeping toward the halfway mark, and our pile of seasonal scares is, admittedly, a little scant. Certainly less than our voracious editors and readers would like. So, they've requested I give you a little motivation. For every ten entries we receive in our Changing Seasons Flash Fiction Contest, they've promised to spare one of my digits. So, let's see, two hands and feet, five digits each, that's... Oh God, please get your submissions in. I'd love to get out of this unscathed, and I can only do that with your help. You can find all the details you need and submit your story at talestoterrify.com slash flash contest. Just an easy, terrifying thousand words on the changing seasons. You'll not only have the chance to walk away with 50 bucks, bragging rights, and have your masterpiece produced on the show, but I'll get to keep all my digits right where they are. I've grown a little attached to them, after all. Again, that's talestoterrify.com slash flash contest. Now, while I go crawl into a corner to contemplate my future, let me hand you off to Meredith to kick off one of our favorite times of year, Women in Horror Month. Good evening, children of the night. I'm fiction editor Meredith Morgenstern. Welcome to the first episode of 2023's Women in Horror Month. Last year, I discussed important themes in horror written by women. This year, it's my honor to introduce you to five writers making their terrifying horror novel debuts. Each week, I'll spotlight a new author adding her voice to the great halls of horror fiction. I have a devilishly wide selection of horrors to choose from, so I hope you find something that gives you nightmares. This week's debuting author spotlight falls on Hadir Elsby and her novel, Daughters of Izdahar. Hadir Elsby is an Egyptian-American writer and librarian. Born in New York City, she grew up being shuffled between Queens and Cairo. Hadir studied history at Hunter College and later earned her master's degree in library science from Queens College, making her a CUNY alum twice over. Aside from writing, Hadir enjoys cats, iced drinks, live theater, and studying the 19th century. Here's a little bit about Hadir's debut, Daughters of Izdahar, published in January by Harper Voyager in the U.S. and Orbit in the U.K. As a water weaver, Nahal can move and shape any water to her will, but she's limited by her lack of formal education. 
She desires nothing more than to attend the newly opened Weaving Academy, take control of her powers, and pursue a glorious future on the battlefield with the first all-female military regiment. But her family cannot afford to let her go. Crushed under her father's gambling debt, Nahal is forcibly married into a wealthy merchant family. Her new spouse, Nico, is indifferent and distant and in love with another woman, a bookseller named Georgina. Georgina has her own secret, however. She is an earth weaver with dangerously uncontrollable powers. She has no money and no prospects. Her only solace comes from her activities with the Daughters of Izdahar, a radical women's rights group at the forefront of a movement with a simple goal, to attain recognition for women to have a say in their own lives. They live very different lives and come from very different means, yet Nahal and Georgina have more in common than they think. The cause, and Nico, brings them into each other's orbit, drawn in by the group's enigmatic leader, Malach Mamdu, and the urge to do what is right. But their problems may seem small in the broader context of their world, as tensions are rising with a neighboring nation that desires an end to weaving and weavers. As Nahal and Georgina fight for their rights, the threat of war looms in the background, and the two women find themselves struggling to earn and keep a lasting freedom. You can buy Daughters of Izdahar at HarperCollins in the U.S. and Orbit Books in the U.K. Links will be in the show notes. And remember that you can help aspiring ghouls like Hadir not only by buying these books, but with reviews on Goodreads, Amazon, and wherever else you lurk. And now, back to Drew in the dungeon. Thank you, Meredith. It's great to hear your voice on the show again, and thanks for representing women in horror, and for the reading recommendation. It sounds like a perfect tale to kick off this special month. Now that your pumps are primed, we've got some fiction from a pair of frightful females to pour into your ears. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Our first story for the evening comes from Laura Nettles. Laura Nettles is a California girl living in Canada. She lights visual effects for film by day and pens terror by night. Snuggles from her dog Roy and warm cups of rooibos tea sustain her. Follow her journey and read some of her fiction at lauranettles.com. Children of the Night, join me for Laura Nettles' Monster of Columnia, a Tales to Terrify original. The designated land far from any prying town was leveled, all life removed from the once fertile vicinity, 
to make way for Camp Columnia. Stones were split with the ringing metal pickaxes of those forced to live there. Thin wooden walls erupted from the now barren soil, barely enough to block the biting, howling winds. Pallets of food arrived for those in charge, the boards recycled into bunks for those interred within. Little of the sustenance would be spared for them. It only took one night for the first shot to ring out. One night for the first cry of an unearthly creature to come from the outskirts of the camp. The scavenging being was small and thin, the size of a toddler, scrounging around on all four emaciated limbs. No eyes glinted in the torchlights. A monster of pure darkness. As the days drudged on, more shots rang out. Piles of corpses rose from shallow graves just outside the barbed wire fences, testaments to the cruelty of humanity. At night, the sounds of pilfered pockets and broken dreams filled the air. Photographs formerly hidden away, stitched into the seams of peasant clothing, were now freed. Darkened by bloodstains, they littered the faces of those who once held them dear, left to the whims of the wind. Scritch, scritch. The fast-growing, hunched-over creatures scrambled over the maggot-ridden piles, picking at the open wounds left by the supposed caretakers. With each rattling breath, it consumed the dark miasma emanating from the evidence of torture. Each lungful caused its limbs to lengthen, torso to deepen with shadows, and nails to explosively extend with broken, jagged cracks. After a few years, word got around of the monster of Columnia. Human eyes would peer into the darkness of starless nights, wondering if each rasping sound was a herald of damnation. Those interred thought of it as a personification of their own suffering, while others deemed it something summoned by the blackest of magics only the accursed folk knew. They would need to starve the magic out of the lesser humans faster. For six long years, the camp continued. Years of mutilation, death, and unspeakable atrocities. Years for the front line to encroach upon the camp's borders. Whoosh! The flames set by the wardens licked hot and fierce out of the glassless windows of each building unlucky entombed souls were locked in. Trapped by the hot metal bars, melting the palms of their hands with each grasp towards freedom. The raid sirens pierced their overwhelmed ears, the liberators on their way, but not fast enough. With their dying screams carried on the wind, the sun fell below the red horizon, obscured by smoke and the smell of burnt bodies. The creature could take no more. A bellow as deep as the pits of hell and as gravelly as brimstone echoed over the camp. The monster of Columnia would stand by no longer. Lunging on its elongated feet, nails gripped into the charred soil, it sprinted to the main plaza. Gasps of the dying and healthy onlookers alike filled the air as the creature of pain and suffering was revealed in full at last. Harsh spotlights flooded the area, 
their blue tints illuminating the gauze-wrapped head streaked with crimson. Its appendages had multiplied, as had its enormous size. As large as a tank and as fierce as an oppressed nation, all six arms reached further than seemed possible, seizing the weaponry mounted on the observation towers, wrenching them, twisting them from their bolted seats of power. As those consigned to the flames grew deathly quiet, the monster expanded. Shadows licked from its sides, swiping swathes of men off their feet. Plucking the sight from their eyes, it left to the final vision the consequences of their own doing. Flames dwindled to embers, the scattered ashes dancing across the scorched soil, blessing it to give way to life in the future with their final sacrifice. The liberators rolled into the camp, only to see the twisted remains of molten metal and splintered, smoldering wood. Reconnaissance teams sifted through the debris, only to find the lone survivor, a six-year-old boy, a six-year-old with a bandaged skull, whose eyes did not reflect in the torchlight. That was Laura Nettles' Monster of Columnia, as read by Colin Duncan. Colin Duncan lives in the Pacific Northwest, where nine months of unrelenting rain alternate with the most beautiful summers in the world. He is a classically trained singer, speaks several languages badly, and was recently certified as a sensei in the martial art of Aikido. Thank you, Colin. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Our second tale tonight comes to us from Amanda Cecilia Lang. Amanda Cecilia Lang is a horror author and aspiring recluse from Denver, Colorado. Her scary stories currently haunt the dark corners of several popular podcasts, e-zines, and best-selling anthologies. You can stalk her work at amandaceceliaLang.com. Just don't be surprised if she leaps out at you from the shadows. Listen with me, children of the night, to Amanda Cecilia Lang's On Their Hands, which first appeared as an interactive story on the app Live Novel Digest. Someone is weeping. Gauzy heart-torn cries pull me from an uneasy pit of sleep and fade into the vast corners of our new bedroom. I squint against the too bright daylight, still upside down inside unfamiliar surroundings. No more cityscape. The bedroom windows on the left now instead of the right. Vast walls textured in pretentious golden silk wallpaper and a high ceiling bedecked with flourishes of crown molding and a teardrop chandelier. I feel tiny inside this absurdly oversized estate. Even in the stillness of waking, the place practically echoes. I roll over and draw Becca into my arms, bury kisses in her tangled mane of midnight dark hair, remind her that she's not alone. Coming here was never going to be easy for her. Hey, babe, you crying? Not crying, sleeping, she mumbles into her pillow. Did I dream it? Darkness, dirt, someone weeping. Makes sense, I suppose. Strange new dreams for a strange new house. I've been worried about her. Worried how she'll process this. She's a master at bottling emotions, but eventually things are going to spill over. It's actually a little concerning that they haven't yet. I pull her tighter. My shoulders ache something fierce and my arms are bone heavy. But I'm not surprised. I lost count of the boxes we lugged inside yesterday. Our whole life uprooted and shoved into cardboard. Not that there was much to uproot. Struggling careers, piles of bills. This house was a godsend. But after driving halfway across Louisiana and unpacking the moving van, we barely had the energy to glance around the property before showering and collapsing onto the bare mattress of a massive four-poster bed. Big day ahead, I say, not moving a muscle. Lots to unpack. Acres of land to explore. This place is unsettling in its opulence. Too big for just the two of us. Yesterday afternoon, when we pulled up to a rambling driveway lined with an ancient century of live oaks, we couldn't believe we had the right address. 
Spanish moss dripping from the trees like silver cobwebs, a front lawn of centipede grass so vast and lush and overgreen it hurt the eyes. The house grew larger and larger before us, a monster of colonial architecture, endless foggy windows, stately columns the color of old bones. Who knows what treasure Becca's grandparents left behind? She never met them, never even knew she had a family until the last of them died three weeks ago. We can't stay in bed all day, I whisper, giving her a sleepy nudge. We should take a look around. Should we? She nestles closer and clasps my hands in hers, letting our wedding rings click. With sultry, warm breath, she runs velvet kisses along my knuckles and... Oh, yuck! Henry! She shakes free of me and we both snap fully awake. What's that all over you? I hold my palms up to the daylight and a nameless dread shivers through me like the echo of someone weeping. I can't explain it. What the hell? My hands are covered in mud and my fingertips are shredded and bloody. This is insane, Henry. Becca stands on the edge of the sprawling, white-washed front porch, trying to make sense of her dead grandparents' lawn. Hundreds of bucket-sized holes pock the lavish landscape. They're everywhere, running the length of the endless driveway, spreading like cavities all across the centipede of grass, all the way to the murky woodland that surrounds the property. Why would you do this? I didn't do this, though my arms hang like shovels at my sides. My fingertips twitch, wrapped tightly in bandages. Hell, I can still feel the grip beneath my mangled fingernails, even after scrubbing with soapy, scorching water. I resist the squirming, craven urge to run, to sprint out into the pitted lawn. Suddenly, the porch, with its distended, shadow-casting eaves and stern century of Corinthian columns, like everything else about this estate, looms over large and surreal and ready to consume me. Is this some kind of joke? Just tell me. Becca studies me with that sharp edge she sometimes gets. Her liquid gray eyes turn icy. Her pale cheeks suck inward and go hollow and shadowed as if to cry, Haven't I suffered enough? I said I didn't do this. Becca storms past me onto the lawn. I follow in accused silence as she weaves through the outbreak of holes. It's as if someone dug up a minefield in the night. But it wasn't me. My mind scrapes and turns at the idea. How could this have possibly been me? I crouch next to a ragged hole in a sloppy mound of grass and dirt. Leaning over the tiny abyss, a chill of disappointment whispers through me. There's nothing down there. I scoop up a handful of the rich soil, relishing the way it crumbles like coffee grounds between my fingers. I take another handful, and the humming of the local cicadas fills my ears, a thousand tiny voices chittering about buried secrets. As I stand, the lawn around me pulls into sharper focus, and I'm astounded by what I start to see. I turn in a slow circle. Becca, look at the ground. I think this has happened before. All around us, The earth is scarred and lumpy where someone long ago dug holes and filled them back in. Hundreds of them, maybe thousands, all showing varying signs of age, like how burial mounds sink into the earth over time. Some, 
look ancient. We follow the holes to the end of the lawn, where the trees thicken to woods. Becca peers into the moss-dripping gloom beyond. They just keep going. Now do you believe this wasn't me? How could I do all this in one night? This is too weird. She steps away from me, shaking her tousled, sabled head, goose flesh breaking out across her slender bare arms. Why would anyone do this? I don't know, I say. Maybe it was some kind of burrowing animal? A gopher or a stray dog? Or a disgruntled gardener? Didn't sound like your grandparents were very popular. Maybe. She side-eyes the blood-stained bandages wrapped around my fingers as we cross into the trees. The massive oaks weave a filigree of canopy above our heads, and the air flickers with alternating blades of light and shadow. The holes go on and on like dotted lines to a treasure map, leading us through the eerie, verdant calm. Becca treads lightly, as if she's trespassing on private ground. It still hasn't sunk in that all this belongs to her now. We come to a small meadow marked with more holes and swaying with spidery blue wildflowers. No, not a meadow. A graveyard. Two lonely headstones wait for us at the far end. Austere masonry knee-high, no fancy ornamentation, not like the rest of the property. Silver-green tendrils of moss obscure the names and the dates. A mist of déjà vu settles over me. The ceaseless droning of the cicada fill my head like a dream. I can't scrape my eyes away from the familiar outlines of those stones. Whoever's buried there, it isn't Becca's grandparents. Unsure of what to do with people she never knew, Becca had them cremated. She clears the moss from the first headstone. The cheap cement is aged and crumbling, the name worn to an unreadable blur by the muggy southern elements. Filthy handprints smudge the inscription. It looks like the mud is still damp. I shove my fists into my pocket. My wife doesn't seem to notice. She drops to her knees before the second headstone, the newer one. She cements her red, robust mouth into a stoic, bloodless line, then, almost casually, brushes the moss aside, just far enough to glimpse the name. This is my mother's grave. Her voice trembles on the edges, betraying the grief she swears she doesn't have. Despite the inheritance, the loss is finally settling in. Good. I squeeze her shoulder but she stiffens and shrugs me off. I don't take it personally. With everything she's trying not to feel, being upset with me is just easier. She'll never know the grandparents who left her everything or why their daughter abandoned her at birth. The probate attorney who hunted her down only had the official paperwork to go off of. He told us her birth mother lived in this house her entire life before committing suicide over a decade ago, an apparent victim of prolonged mental illness. Of course, the harrowing details were not part of the public record. The grandparents died of natural causes, no living relatives, no friends. Nobody to explain why, with all this wealth, her mother didn't keep her. Nobody to explain these insidious holes. Becca pulls the remaining moss from her mother's gravestone, 
though somehow I already know what the epithet will say and that it's wrong. She searches no longer. Do you want me to spend the day filling holes when I should be unpacking boxes? I say. I need to be alone with all this. Becca thrusts a rusty shovel at me and retreats inside. Off to wander cavernous rooms haunted by sheet-draped furniture and the photographs of dead strangers. Maybe she'll find some leftover pieces of her mother in a drawer or closet. Something to occupy the hole her birth family left inside her all these years. I sigh. The sky drips with sunshine, and the buzzing lullaby of cicadas casts a sleepy spell across the lawn. I wipe the sweat from my forehead, then get to work with the shovel. Right away, the tool feels unnatural, clunky, a blister waiting to happen. After filling in a few holes, I toss it aside and drop to my knees. Much better. The soil slides like dark velvet between my hands. Humming with the cicadas, I scoop mound after mound back into the ground. Naturally, before that, I root around each tiny abyss, making sure there isn't something secret and tantalizing down there. But no, there's nothing. By the time I reach the woods, my bandages have disappeared and the meaty tips of my fingers are bleeding again. Mud clots the tiny cuts, but the grit is necessary. Yes. My heart sits like cracked earth inside my chest, a desperate, crumbling feeling. But what am I desperate for? I can't shake this dizzy, itchy urge to sink my hands back into the ground. I feel it, like I feel the expanding chasm in the gut of my soul. A dark certainty. There's something enormous buried out here. When I'm certain Becca isn't watching from the house, I dig three fresh holes. Nothing's down there. I fill them in quickly. The spectral echo of my wife weeping carries through the midnight hallways of the old estate and out through the pitted landscape of my dreams. I open my eyes to moonlit windows and roll over in bed. A white shadow huddles at the edge of the mattress. Becca's shoulders tremble and her breath rasps with secret tears. I slide close and pull her into an embrace. Fresh bandages conceal my raw, seeping fingers. Becca resists for a heartbeat, then buries her face against my chest, hot tears welling up from a deep, untapped pit. Hey, babe, I'm right here. I speak softly and kiss the top of her head. Talk to me. We shouldn't have come here. I don't belong. You belong wherever we are, you and me. This whole big house, she moans, but my mother didn't have room for me. Why, Henry? Why didn't she want me here? I don't have the answers to take the edge off her past, so I rock Becca in my arms, tangle my stinging fingers deep in her hair, and hum a strange forgotten lullaby. She relaxes into me, bones loosening, her sobs slow to hiccups which fade into the shallow rhythm of sleep. My mind drifts with her in the too bright moonlight and settles like dust along the perimeter of darkness. I close my eyes. A long, breathy sob echoes through the master suite. Becca, don't. I kiss her forehead. 
but her expression is smooth and tranquil. She's still asleep. Another sob stirs the antique air around us, but it doesn't come from Becca's lips. It drifts in from the pocked nightscape outside our window and crawls along the back of my neck. My veins prickle with an icy, skittering awe. I lower Becca to her pillow. Then I glide like a shadow towards the window, careful not to startle whatever is out there. Beyond the glass, the moonlit lawn is a green and silver dreamscape. The holes I spent all day filling are back. Hundreds of Dark, fathomless craters pit the fabric of my sanity. I grip the windows, dig my ruined fingernails in. A human silhouette crouches in the centipede grass below, opening a fresh hole. I don't waste a heartbeat. Becca, wake up! Someone's outside! I told her I didn't do this. I scramble for the bedroom door, not waiting to see if my wife follows. The light switch in the hallway eludes me, so I trip through a darkened corridor of gauzy dust covers and hanging photographs. The harsh faces of my wife's estranged family watch from the gilded walls as I rush past. Quickly, half-falling, I stagger down the grand spiral staircase, following the elegant half-moon curve of red-carpeted steps, as if the mansion itself is ushering me toward some grand and revolutionary discovery. At the bottom, the cold marble floor is a shock against my bare feet, and I shiver as I reach the stately double doors with their frosted oval windows and moving shadows beyond. I fumble with a brass deadbolt and the chain lock. My bandages flop loosely, and my fingertips are slippery with blood. I throw the door open and stagger outside. The sultry landscape beyond the dark and majestic porch hums with a thousand midnight insects but not a single weeping voice. The mansion stands as a glowing apparition against the verdant night. I scan the lawn and the dripping shadow beneath the mossy oaks. But I'm alone out here. Worse, the holes are gone. The lawn is as I left it this afternoon. I fall to my knees, adrenaline draining from me, my treasure-hunting spirit sinking into the grass. What the hell, Henry? Becca says from the doorway, clutching the collar of her bathrobe. Her eyes are bloodshot and hollowed out, and the nest of her midnight hair casts her in a haggard impatience. Someone was out here digging. I hold up a handful of grass and dirt. She stares at me, like I'm the stranger. A tear slices down her cheek. I told you, there's nothing for us here. Before I can say more, she slams the door. I suppose I deserved that, though I know what I saw. Someone was out here. As I turn to survey the night, a distant voice, a voice of sorrow and loam, whispers between my ears, Shh. We spend the morning apart. I scrub my bloody fingerprints off the windowsill and the front door and try to pretend last night never happened. When that's done, I catch myself wandering the yard. The sun swells higher and higher above the trees. My head buzzes. I know why I came out here, but I ignore the ground and the restless ache in my hands. I slip between the live oaks and roam the acres of tangled green property. I tell myself I'm familiarizing myself with our new home, 
not searching for holes or murky silhouettes or loamy disembodied voices. The sun hangs bloated on the horizon by the time I return to the house. I poke my sweaty head into a dozen shallow, dapped rooms before I find Becca. My wife sits like a child in the center of a bedroom floor, a little girl's bedroom. At first glance, judging by the frilly, raggedy Anne canopy bed and the collection of small antique tea sets and porcelain dolls. But as I step closer, I realize with a start this is Becca's mother's room. Judging by the tangled mess of dust covers and vintage treasures strewn around her legs, my wife has been excavating the past. Outdated lacy sleeves and bubblegum pink skirts hang from open drawers. Picture books that haven't been read in over a decade sit spine cracked across the rug. Everywhere, trinket boxes lie on their sides, spilling obscure mementos and girlish costume jewelry like innards. The floorboards creak as I approach, and Becca hastily wipes her eyes. What am I doing here, Henry? she says, not looking up from the framed photograph she holds in her lap. Why am I trying to get to know someone I'm never going to know? You're reclaiming your roots. That's what you always wanted. Not like this. I can tear up this entire house, puzzle all this junk into loose pictures of who they were. I still won't have my mother and I won't know what was inside her heart. Give it time. We've barely scraped the surface of this place. It's too late. She stands and trips past her mother's belongings. I want to go home, back to the city. First thing tomorrow I'm putting this monstrosity on the market. Then I'm going to forget I was ever here. You're joking. You said it when we got here. This place is too big for the two of us. She hesitates, and in the distance between worlds, I feel us breaking apart. She looks at me as if I'm a stranger, as if I don't understand her. And in this moment, I don't. Henry, it just keeps getting bigger. I shake my head. Have you lost your mind? You don't toss a house like this aside? Like they tossed me aside? The house didn't do that. I nod my chin at the crown molding and weeping, whispering walls. Take a step away from yourself, Becca. This place is amazing. What do you even care about this damn house? You're always out in the yard. Oh, Christ, that again? How many times do I have to say it? I didn't dig those holes. She regards me coolly. We're leaving tomorrow. Running away won't heal you, Becca. We're not leaving, not yet. Maybe not ever. That isn't your call. She pauses in the doorway, glaring daggers. Your hands are filthy, by the way. She tosses the family photograph to the hardwood and stalks out the door, leaving me with disbelief pulsing between my temples. I retrieve the frame and flip it over, smearing muddy, dark prints across the glass. The grandparents glower up at me, pinched smiles, severe gazes. In the photograph, they stand behind Becca's mother, a young woman in her late twenties dressed in the poofy pink dress of a child, a paralysis of youth, their naughty, age-spotted hands clutching her arms, digging indentations into her skin, pinning her in place. She wears dainty white gloves stained at the fingertips, and her eyes are black and joyless. 
the resemblance to Becca is striking. Echoes of petite figure, aristocratic chin, pale dewy complexion, and sable hair, yes. But the real parallel is in their wistful expressions. The vast longing. I try to align the young woman in the photograph with the smudge of shadow I glimpsed in the yard. Yet what I see is someone desperate to pull away. Someone desperate to come to terms with the gaps inside her soul. Someone who would walk beyond earth and grave to find what it is she's searching for. I wake to weeping. The window on the wrong side of the bed and the whisper of fingernails scraping the floorboards. My wife is there crouched in a corner, spine arched like an animal, burrowing. Her midnight hair is muddy and stringy, her fingertips of stubs of meatless white bone. Splinters and blood and cracked fingernails smear the floor around her. My fingers twitch and tingle, eager to join in, I sit up. Becca snaps her head my way. Except, it isn't Becca. Of course it isn't. Though God, the family resemblance is uncanny. What are we searching for? I whisper. The dead woman's eyes glitter blackly at me from the gloom. She raises a finger bone to her lips and speaks inside my head. Shh, you'll wake them. Her daughter stirs beside me in bed, breathing softly, unaware. But I don't think it's Becca who we're trying not to wake. This is the master suite where the grandparents used to sleep. They won't let me, the woman whispers. They control everything, even my dead part. They won't let me have it. She reaches for me. I take her hand. Together we slip through the long and jagged darkness. When I raise my eyes to meet hers, I find myself standing in a low rolling mist on the edge of the mossy woods, sweaty and alone. The holes are back, hundreds of them. I hold my muddy hands up, and the whites of my finger bones wink at me through the ruined tips of my flesh. I drop onto my hands and knees, keening in pain, eager to go deeper. The cicadas buzz. A shadow flicks across the corner of my eye, a shadow no living creature could cast. The dead woman crawls between the oaks, burrowing arm deep into the ground. My vision rolls with fog. The night blurs. I step towards the woods and emerge in the graveyard. Ahead, the woman stoops before the abandoned headstones. She collapses atop the older of the two graves and drags her finger bones across the ruined stone inscriptions. Then she claws at the grave soil, furiously, silently, dirt scattering as if she's desperate to uncover a missing piece of herself before it stops beating. Eagerly, I drop down and join her. They said it was right here, she whispers. Her voice scoops me out. Her lips move out of sync with the syllables in my head. They said I wasn't allowed to see it. They said they buried it. We'll find it, I promise, whatever it is. Together we uproot the ground. Our icy fingers tangle and dance and exhume the rich, fertile grave. Down and down we go until the opening is above us. 
but it's not deep enough. With pits of agony elongating her eyes and mouth, the dead woman clutches her empty arms against her chest and wails at me. A stillborn, my baby, please, just let me hold her, please, please let me hold my baby. Where have you buried her? Where? She reaches for me with withered arms, and I clasp her hands. Our finger bones click. Her stolen life ricochets through me, all the lullabies, all the bedtime stories, all the cherished motherly memories that never were, every milestone that hollowed her out and crumbled her foundations. A flash of despair, a too short lifetime left sheltered and unfulfilled. Then, like the echo of a lonely voice weeping, she grows faint and vanishes into the dust. I'm alone down here, but I know what I must do. I crawl from the grave and face the house where my wife sleeps. Then I crack my knuckles and dig the final hole. The rising sunshine dances spades across Becca's peaceful face. I double-check that my hands are clean, and then I sit quietly on the edge of the mattress. I want everything to be perfect for her when she wakes. Our first days here were rocky, but life will be better now, fuller. Everything will be as it should have been. Making sure my hands are still clean, I brush the stray grain of soil from the bedsheet. Becca stirs on the edge of wakening, and her mother's thin arm loosens around her. Humming a quiet lullaby, I readjust the woman's silty bones so that she cradles her daughter closely. Then I fold my hands and wait for the joyous reunion. That was Amanda Cecilia Lang's On Their Hands, as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is the managing editor here at Tales to Terrify. He has narrated stories for Tales to Terrify, Far-Fetched Fables, and Starship Sofa. When not day-jobbing, he enjoys listening to fiction podcasts and audio drama. He shares life with an amazing partner, dog, and a cat. Thank you, Seth. Well children of the night. The hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Amanda Carrillo, Amanda Gottfried, Kathy Robinson, Lesel Baxter, Orion D. Hegra, and Paul Belcher whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, 
Podchaser, or Apple Podcast and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we haunt your fitful slumber with more Tales to Terrify. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.